0: But we're going to continue uh, with our 13th installment on our sanctuary study. And uh, as we begin, uh, this one's going to be a little complex. And so I'm going to ask uh, if you will will kneel with me. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for opening. By the way, I'm so thankful that there's a need to open the windows. (laughs) I am so thankful. I just never thought I'd be so happy to be able to see the asphalt and the road. Uh, the light, the sunlight the Lord provided us this week has just been absolutely glorious. And uh, it has been so wonderful. So thank you so much for opening those up. Keep us awake and uh, keep the air circulating here. But uh, we're going to be looking at a, a number of, uh, of things that are, that are complex and we're going to try to pack it into one sermon. And, uh, and that's going to be a challenge. So I, we're, I'm going to need the Holy Spirit not only to give me the words to speak but to give you ears to hear. Uh, so that you know what it is he wants you to see while this feeble instrument does his level best. So I'm going to give you a chance to pray as well. I'm going to ask you to kneel here in a moment. I'm going to say some uh, my prayer, and I'm going to ask you to pray silently uh, as I ask you to pray for the speaker and yourselves. So as far as possible, let's kneel. <gasps> Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to come before you and to kneel. It's a reminder of our continual dependence upon you for everything, even the breath we take. It's, it's encouraging to know that we're not accidents. Even before you hung this world in space, you looked into the future and saw us in this room here kneeling. We need you, Lord. We thank you for the incredible price you paid to save us, to redeem us. But Lord, we are so weak and erring and so easy, distractible. Help us to maintain our focus upon you. And Lord, uh, at this hour, we again uh, plead for the blood of Christ to wash away our sin, that his righteousness will cover us. There is no other righteousness that you will accept but that of your son. And besides, we have none to offer you anyway. We, uh, We approach the throne with his righteousness now. Lord, we ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and we're reminded in John fourteen twenty six 26 that, that you will give the Spirit to those who ask and that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so we pray for his presence here. Lord, bring to my mind the things you would have me to say, but this is such a complex subject and uh, that, Lord, we're going to need your guidance as we go through this now that we will, we will see your hand in and through and throughout this presentation and so, Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with our congregation, for your angels, uh, Lord, to just put a shield around to keep the evil one away, and that you will whisper your wisdom to our hearts. I'm going to give to each here now a moment of silence where they can pray in their hearts to you as well, Father. Lord, again, I, I just want to thank you for this moment, and uh, truly, Father, this presentation takes on new meaning as we are um, at the, the closing moments of Earth's history. We thank you for this, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you should have your lessons with you. We have them out at the table if you don't have one, and I just want to do uh, a bit of a recap. Um We've been learning in the sanctuary <clears throat> that the plan of salvation is revealed there. God gave it to Israel for him to, to, for them to share with the world. And uh, we've been to the outer court where we learned how to become a Christian. God teaches us. And then in the holy place, we learned how to remain one. The most holy place we're learning is the, is the prophetic section. It's putting our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the context uh, of prophecy, end time prophecy. And we have been looking at the day of atonement. We talked about how in the daily services, that the children of Israel, when they confessed their sin over uh, the victim, the innocent victim, and then took the life of the victim, that the blood of the victim was transferred or was, was transferred over to the sanctuary. And in symbol, it was to teach Israel that their sins, their repentant sins, would be transferred to the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, Then, uh, at the end of the year, they experienced what was known as the yearly service or the Day of Atonement, which Israel came to recognize as the judgment. And it was during that time that the sins that had been transferred over uh, throughout the year to to the Most Holy Place and the Holy Place, excuse me, was then cleansed, and the record of sin was done away with. And it was a time when Israel was very excited because they knew that the record of sin that was registered against them was forever removed from them. So it was a very exciting time. They didn't view the judgment as something to fear unless they weren't paying attention. But if they engaged the process, God would take care of them. Now, in our last presentation, we talked about Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, we saw uh, a, a sweep of history, the rise and falls of nations, and we saw history before it took place. That's, a, that's an amazing thought. And we talked about why it was impossible for, da- for Daniel to actually write that history after the fact. It was impossible. Uh, I won't go into that now, but you can hear the message on the website. But uh, what I'd like to do at this point is a pop quiz. <clears throat> You see how the pastor is doing as a teacher. What was the first nation? Okay, Babylon. What was the second nation? Third nation? And the fourth nation? Rome. And then we know it broke up into uh, 10 Germanic tribes. We talked about that. And what Daniel 2 does is it lays the foundation for our presentation today. Uh, it also lays down the foundation for the presentation that we'll be doing later when we study how the devil, devil worked to counter the heavenly sanctuary, and we're going to need those prophecies to show us. Today's prophecy is an amazing prophecy because it's going to show us <coughs> excuse me, the starting point of the judgment, which is the final phase of the plan of salvation. It is the final uh, aspect of the ministry of Christ before he comes to take us home. My friends, the hour is late. We're going to take a look at where we are in the stream of time. It doesn't take long uh, for the careful Bible student who studies the book of Daniel to recognize the parallels between Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. And what we find there is, are the rise and fall of the same nations in the same order. And to correctly understand what God's trying to communicate by going over the same sequence, uh, we have to understand the principle of repetition and expansion. That God is a brilliant teacher. And when when he lays down the foundation in Daniel 2, he goes over that same ground again in Daniel 7, but then gives some more detail. It's as if he's saying, I want you to follow the stream of time, I want you to know where we are, this is familiar ground for you, but now I want you to pay special attention to this. He's a brilliant teacher. Then he does it again in Daniel chapter 8, and he fleshes out some more detail in Daniel chapter 9. We are going to be looking at the longest time prophecy in scripture. We're going to be looking at the most solemn event in the history of our world. And in our next presentation, we're going to flesh that out even more. Now, I'm going to be covering a lot of ground rather quickly. So put your thinking caps on and your seatbelts and stay with me. Uh, Daniel chapter 8 begins with Daniel, this time having a vision. So let's take a look. Uh, And by the way, most of you, I'm sure, got my email to be sure to read Daniel chapters 7 and 8. I won't ask for hands to see how many actually did it. But if you, if you read Daniel chapter 7 and 8, what we're going to go through here is going to make a lot more sense. And if you didn't get that chance, then later this afternoon, read 7 and 8, then go through the lesson again, and it'll begin to connect. But let's take a look at question number one first, um, found in Daniel chapter 8. It says this, Daniel had an amazing vision in which he saw a ram with two horns. Whom does this ram represent? Well, isn't it wonderful that the Bible actually gives us the answer? We don't have to guess at it. We don't have to come together and take a vote or a consensus. The Bible actually tells us no guessing necessary. Daniel 8.20 says, The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of who? Media, media and, and Persia. Um, you, you're going to note right away that the starting point of the nations now is different than it was in Daniel 2. Do you remember Daniel 2? Once again, what was the first nation on the scene? Babylon. But now, now it's not Babylon, it's Medo-Persia. The reason for that is that Babylon is about to pass off the stage of, the, of, of nations. Uh, Medo-Persia is on the rise And Medo-Persia is about to remove Babylon from its place of supremacy. And so uh, the Lord, when he begins with Daniel, uh, this vision, he begins this time with Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia conquered a good part of uh, the then known world and ruled from 539 uh, B.C. to 331 B.C. I don't know how many of you went back after Daniel 2 and did your research uh, to find out the rise and falls of nations, but you will find that history lines up perfectly with what the Bible tells us here and what else could we expect. Now, so Medo-Persia was on the scene, Is a, and, and what, what, what follows Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece. That's what we learned from Daniel 2. So let's take a look at our next question. Next, Daniel saw a goat with a great horn between his eyes. What does this mean? So Medo-Persia was the ram with the two horns. One side was larger. One horn was larger than the other. And that is reflective of the fact that, me, that when, uh, when they began conquering, Media was the larger, uh, more prominent nation. Media and Persia had actually unified under one king. And later, Persia becomes the more dominant nation. In fact, so much so that historians today just refer to it as the Persian Empire. But Bible the Bible pointed this thing out. Well, anyway, another creature comes on the scene and it's a goat, had a large horn on his on his head, and he takes out the ram. And in Daniel 8, 21, 22, the angel tells us who the goat represented. The male goat is the kingdom of who? It is Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first what? King and the as for the broken horn and the, what? For that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not of its power. And, um, not with its power. And we talked about Alexander the Great and uh, how he ruled uh, the then known world with his military conquest. And you remember that in the in the vision, uh, the goat, as it was moving across the ground, what was, you, what was unique about that goat and his movement? Do you remember? He wasn't touching the ground. He was moving pretty fast. And uh, historically, we learned that Alexander conquered the known world in four years. Now, you have to realize, these guys were not mechanized. They didn't have trucks and tanks and airplanes to move them around. This was a fast-moving uh, force And it wasn't a particularly large force, but they moved very quickly, they were very confident, they didn't experience defeat, and in four years, uh, they were conquering the known world. And, and actually, uh, the, the area that they ruled was actually larger than what the Medo-Persians had ruled with a considerably larger force. Uh, but, as you remember, Alexander, uh, though he could conquer nations, could not conquer himself. And, uh, and in, a, in a drunken binge, um, he uh, evidently experienced some kind of blood poisoning and died. But prior to his death, his wife asked him a question, history tells us, to whom will the nations, will the kingdom come, who will, the, who will inherit the kingdom? And of course, Alexander had a son, and his response was that it would go to the strongest. And that's very much what happened. The generals turned on one another, and uh, they began fighting for uh, supremacy, and the nation actually, or the the, the nation actually, ended up dividing amongst four generals. It settled in on four generals. One was Ptolemy, the other was Lysimachus, the third was Cassander, and the fourth was Seleucus. And the nations they ruled. I'm just wondering if we have some historians here. This one, this one would probably be the easiest. Ptolemy, who did they rule? It was Egypt, I heard it. All right, Egypt. By the way, do you remember who was the last Ptolemy uh, ruler? It's Cle- Cleopatra. Very good. Um, then the, the next was Lysimachus, who, who ruled thrice. Cassander ruled Macedonia, and Seleucus ruled Syria. And of course, we can see here that the Grecian Empire lasted from 331 to 168 BC, but it never really achieved. The, the grandeur and the power that it did under Alexander. Now, who follows Greece? Rome. See, this is why it's so important uh, to be a detective, to, to make sure you understand Daniel too because then you can pull the other things together. Number three, <clears throat> what does Daniel see coming out out of one of the four winds of heaven? What power did this little horn represent? Daniel 8, 9 says, and out of one of them came a a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Now we already talked about what this nation was that follows. And historically we know that the nation that follows is the nation of Rome. Rome ruled from 168 BC to 476 AD. And it was Rome that was in power when Christ was born in Bethlehem and also was the power that uh, crucified the Lord. Um, this power would start out as a political power and then it would grow how? Exceedingly great. And what we're going to find is that this power that begins politically then becomes a religious power. Open your Bibles uh, again to Daniel <coughs> Daniel chapter 8. And I want you to see something here that's very, very important. Daniel chapter 8. Because I, I, I left a text out that I think I'm going to add. Daniel 8, verse 9. Are you there? If you're there, say amen. In fact, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let's begin. I'll give you a little here's a, a, teach, a teaching moment for you, okay? Let's go. Let's start up with verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And we talked about that in his place where four notable ones came up towards the four what? Winds. This is very important. The four winds of heaven. Number nine. And out of one of them, stop, people often think that he's referring to the horn here. He isn't. He's referring to the wind. How do you know, pastor? You know, um, I don't know, I can't think of a good example in in English, but uh, in Spanish, we have words that are masculine or feminine. Okay? And uh, so if you're talking about a car would be in the masculine, then you're going to use an antecedent that's el in front of it because it matches the masculine in the car. Does this make sense? And, you know, in English, we kind of have something like that. Many times people refer to ships as being in the the feminine, you know, uh, she she's been sailing now for whatever you know what I'm saying. In the Greek is very similar to the Spanish, and the word for horn is feminine. It's in the feminine. The word for wind can swing feminine or masculine, and in um, in verse nine, the antecedent them is masculine, so it cannot refer to the horn because it's feminine. So the only thing it can refer to is the wind. So from one of the compasses, one of the directions of the compass, another nation was on the rise. That's what this text is telling us. And out of one of them came a little horn, and it started out small, but grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land, which we know to be Palestine, and eventually would take Palestine. But now look at the next verse. And it grew to the hosts of what? heaven interesting and it cast some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them interesting and it even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host let me stop there those of you who have a new king james your scholars tried to help you here the prince there is that capital yes it's referencing to christ exalted himself as high as the prince of the host and by him the daily sacrifices or the continual uh, were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was? Isn't this interesting? So this power would be very instrumental in trying to do away with the work of Christ in heaven from the conscious minds of God's people on earth. Take note of that because we're going to revisit this when we get over uh, to lesson 16. We're going to revisit this. So, what starts out as a political power ends up being a religious power and interferes with God's work in the heavenly sanctuary. Let's take a look at number four. Daniel was told that this little horn would defile the sanctuary. How long until it would be cleansed? And so we're looking here at a sweep of history, right? The rise and falls of nations. And so how long is this going to take? Let's take a look here. And by the way, don't miss this. Daniel 2 showed us that everything happened in sequence. Am I right? We're, we're looking. Uh, was that right? Uh, you have to, You can't miss that. The sequence is extremely important. And what you're finding, what we're seeing now in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8, is that the same sequence follows. This is very important. Why? Because the next thing happens after the Roman Empire has already done its job. What's the next thing? And it says, and he said unto me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That's day of atonement terminology, my friends. That's the cleansing of the sanctuary from the record of sin. But not only that, but also to remove the defilement that has taken place as a result of the little horn that waxed great. We're going to study more into that. But, but in any case, you know there are some that say, how do you know that doesn't mean days, literal days? Well, if it does mean literal days, we're looking at a little less than seven years. And did these nations rise and fall in seven years? Absolutely not. In fact, uh, Medo-Persia ruled for 200 years Greece ruled for 140, and Rome ruled for 150. So something's not adding up unless a day equals a year. And what we're going to find in prophecy that it actually does. Let's take a look at a couple of, uh, of examples here. Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel was a prophet of the Lord and he prophesied in Babylon, where the children of Israel were held captive as a result of their apostasy from God. So, Ezekiel chapter 4, if you're there, say amen. amen. And so, here the Lord is giving uh, to the children of Israel in captivity a- an example. And I'll pick up in verse 4. It says, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel himself is going to be a sign for Israel. It says, the Lord says to him, Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So that's Israel, the kingdom to the north. Let's keep going. And when you have, so uh, so a day for every year of their apostasy. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. And they have laid on you a day for each year. So here we see the principle of day for a year. Uh, that is already laid down in scripture. Let's look at another example. And that is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Numbers 14. If you're there, say amen. Amen. This is uh, a a familiar incident when the children of Israel uh, sent out the 12 spies into um, Canaan. And they came back with a bad report. Um, they, it was a faithless report. They had been gone 10 days, and they came back and frightened the children of Israel and, re, and really just wiped out their faith. So the Lord then responds to what has happened in verse 34. It says, according to the number of days in which you spot out the land, excuse me, I said 10 days, it was twelve days, uh, 40 days. According to the number of days in which you spot out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt, how long? One year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. And so here we find that God, then for every day that they they spat out the land, it was a punishment for one year that they were in the wilderness, and we all know that they were in the wilderness 40 years. Are you with me? So the point I'm trying to make here is that the idea, the principle of a day for a year is biblically founded. The other would not make any sense. But a day for a year, 2,300 years, does make sense. And we're going to see that this whole uh, vision fits into that time frame. This is going to be amazing. But what we're lacking right now, so what we do know is that in 2,300 years, uh, Daniel's being told here, the sanctuary will be cleansed, but it really is meaning to us unless we have a starting place. So let's keep going and see if we can find a starting place. Number uh, five. How did Daniel respond when he was told this? Daniel eight twenty seven says, and I, Daniel, did what? Fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business, but I was astonished by the vision, and no one understood it. we got to get a little context here. Daniel is no longer a teenager. In fact, if you do the math, he's in his 70s. And in this, in, in, in Daniel's people have been in captivity uh, now uh, for, um, for about 60 years, and he is wanting his people to go home. And part of the reason he does want that is because his people being in captivity is a, hu- is a humiliation to his God. The whole reason why they were there was out of apostasy. And what do the other nations think of the God of heaven when his people are in captivity? And so Daniel's thinking of the honor of God and he wants his people to go back home for the honor of God. This was, this was a burden on Daniel's heart. And so in this dream, uh, or in this vision, when the angel tells him, 2300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed, Daniel was a prophet, understood the day for a year principle. You think he was a little discouraged? He was very discouraged. How do we know that that was on his mind? Open your Bibles. Because when Daniel 8 ends, we transition into Daniel 9. Watch the the very first thing Daniel is thinking about. Okay? So as a result of this vision, Daniel goes back to the books and starts doing a little prayerful research. And he comes across something interesting. Are you there, Daniel 9? We're picking up in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hasuerus, by the way, If you're wondering about how much time has elapsed from that last dream to this, it's about 13 years. So Daniel now is in his 80s. In the first year of Darius, the king of Hasuerus, the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. In other words, he was trying to figure out and make a connection between the 2300 days and how long they were going to be in Babylon. But when he studies the prophecies of Jeremiah, he says, Wait a second. The Lord said we're only going to be here 70 years and this thing is about up. So then, what was the 2300 years about? And so, Daniel chapter 9 is Daniel praying to the Lord for giving him understanding. And I, I want to see here. Um, so the one part of the prayer or of the vision that has not been explained is the 2300 days. And so, let's pick up, where can I take you here? This is so interesting to me. Let's pick up in verse 20. You there? Verse 20. Daniel 9, verse 20. So Daniel 9 is really a beautiful prayer. It's very beautiful to study it, actually, to see the elements within the prayer. You'll see very similar elements to the Lord's prayer in this prayer. Very beautiful. But verse 20, it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in vision at the beginning, the first part of the vision when he got it, Daniel 8, uh, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening sacrifice, so about 3 o'clock. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. Amen. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Hey, I want to pause right there for a moment. This is a mind blower. Heaven is somewhere far, far away, friends. There are those that um, uh, that say it's in the, somewhere in the Orion belt. Um, if from the moment he began his prayer in chapter nine, Gabriel was dispatched. I, I, this tells us they, angels travel faster than the speed of sound. This tells us that they travel faster than the speed of light. The only way they can get there to hear that fast is by traveling the speed of thought. That's amazing. You know, it is a reminder, friend, that when you kneel, and I kneel, when we when we call out to God, God hears. God is listening. And, 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 and that, that, you know, God doesn't play favorites. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was for you, it was for me, it was for Daniel. So, dear friend, when you go before the throne of grace, remember you are dearly beloved. And as you lay out your petitions before Him, God is listening. But study the prayer of Daniel, uh, because there was a lot of humility in his prayer. A lot there was confession of sin and acknowledgement that he needed a savior. And so, anyway, so uh, the angel comes, and let's take a look because this next verse is, uh, and, and see what takes place is really packed. So the angel picks right up where he left off. So here in, in, in Daniel 8, he gives the rise and falls of nations and he's trying to give the sequence to show Daniel the approximate time in history when the judgment will take place. He mentions the 2300 days. Daniel passes out. So Gabriel doesn't get a chance to finish it. But the moment he comes back, he picks right up where he left off. And he begins with, An aspect of the 2,300 days. So let's take a look at question number six. In the next chapter, the angel explains the prophecy in greater detail. How long was the time period not previously described in the vision? Oh, this is a packed one, all right? This is where you tighten your seatbelt. Daniel 9 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy. Okay, you ready? So the first thing Daniel does, or Gabriel does, is he mentions an aspect of the 2300 days that he didn't have a chance to mention the first time. And he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your city. That word, determine, is a very interesting word and only appears once in the Bible. The word is kathak in the Hebrew. Kathak. And that word means to cut or to divide. Are you with me? To cut or to divide. Now the rabbi, now this word is a very common word, it's just in the, bi, in, in, in the ancient Hebrew, but it's, it, it just wasn't in the scriptures. But you'll find lots of other uh, material outside of scripture where that word is used, and it's used to divide. In other words, it's a piece of something that's cut off. In fact, to, just to give you an idea, the rabbis of this era would use that word to describe amputation. So, so the angel's saying that, that a part of that 2,300 days has to do with your people. That's what he's saying. The first, the first 400 in, uh, or the first 70 weeks, and we're, we were already talking about a day for a year, so we know that we're dealing with, if you, if you do the math, we're dealing with 490 days or years, right? If you got 70 weeks, 70 times 7, if you mathematicians are with me, please say Amen. Part of the mission of the Jews, they were a nation of priests, right? And they were to spread the news that the Messiah was going to come. It wasn't just to save Jews, it was to save the world. And so it was actually the privilege and the honor of the Jewish nation that when he came to introduce him to the world, that was their job. But they became exclusive. They became very club oriented. And they didn't spread the message like they were supposed to. And the history of the Jewish nation was one of continual apostasy. Even though they had the truth, even though they had the prophets, even though they had the books, the problem is they weren't following them, they weren't fulfilling their mission. They became exclusive. And they, if you're not growing, you are dying. That's just the way it works. And so the history of the nation of Israel is one of continual apostasy with some revival, then more apostasy, then revival. And that's finally how they end up in Babylon. The Lord is trying to cure them of this. And so the angel comes to let Daniel know that your people are going to be given another chance. I hope you're following me because this is going to make a whole lot of sense later. But they're given a probationary period of 490 years. For what purpose? Well, the angel said um, for the purpose of to, to finish the transgression, stop this roller coaster ride, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, but also to bring in everlasting righteousness, to announce the Messiah's coming. And so the mission of Jesus was to to set us free from sin. So the big question is the starting point. Take a look at question number seven. So we're seeing here that the 2300 days is being segmented, two parts. We're going to flesh those out now. What was the starting point for the 2300 day and the 70 week time prophecy? Well, Daniel 25 says, know therefore and understand that from the what? The going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. All right, keep your thinking caps on. This is another whopper. So from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem till uh, Messiah the Prince, there shall be Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, if you got seven plus 62, what does that equal? 69. So you're dealing with 69 weeks. So what he what he just told Daniel is that from the command to build Jerusalem to the Messiah coming on the scene is 69 weeks. Is this a mind blower? Yes. The Jews actually had the data to know when the Messiah was supposed to come on the scene. They had the data right there. So when when was the command to restore and build Jerusalem? Open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Ezra was a priest of God, and he was one of the leaders that went back to rebuild Jerusalem from Babylon. The Persian kings gave... I pray you could stay with me. There are three decrees the Persian kings gave for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And it's all right here in Ezra. You ready? I'm gonna take, take you through this very fast. Number one. The first one is under King Cyrus. Uh, and his proclamation is found in verse one. Are you there? Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stole, stirred up the, the, the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a a proclamation. Are you all there? Did I lose you? Okay, Ezra chapter 1. So you'll read down there his proclamation. By the way, history remembers Cyrus as a type of Abraham Lincoln. He was an emancipator. Back then, there was a real... Uh, it was a habit of when you conquered a nation to remove all the people and relocate them. But Cyrus is the one that decreed that all those peoples can go, can go back. It was a real olive branch to the nations that had come under the control of Babylon to return home. So this is the first decree. And this decree uh, gave uh, Israel the opportunity to rebuild the temple. Now you remember, the devil didn't like the idea. And he had Sam Ballad and his buddies Gave him a hard time. So now let's go to decree number two. Uh, Let's go to chapter six. So they really held up the work of the building of the temple. And uh, now there's a new king on the throne. And this king is appealed to by the surrounding nations who are trying to stop Israel. This king does a little research. Finds out what Cyrus had decreed. And you remember the law of the Medes of the Persians can never be changed? So when he finds this decree, he reinforces it. Uh, Let's pick up verse 6. Then King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasuries were stored in Babylon uh, and uh, Akmethah in the palace that is in the province of Media and a scroll was found and in it a record was written thus. And there in that record it shows the decree. So that's the second decree and under this decree the temple's finished. But there's a third decree, and that's the one that interests us, and that one is found in chapter seven. and uh, And we're going to look uh, in chapter seven. This is now Artaxerxes, and I'm going to pick up in verse eleven of chapter seven. Are you there? Now this is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest and scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. And of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings. By the way, isn't it wild that we're actually looking at archaeological material? This is the actual decrees that we're reading. And uh, To me, that blows my mind. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a, a decree. Now, I'll give you time to read this. If you look at verse 25, let's pick up a 25. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set up what? Ah, something now is different. This was not done before. Set up magistrates and judges who may judge other people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him. What has happened now is that under Xerxes, Judah, Jerusalem now has the right for sovereign rule. Are you with me? Now it can build the walls. Now um, it has sovereignty. Uh, sovereignty. Are you with me? This is new. Now, very interesting. You have to think like a, um, someone of this era, like a Mede. Let's see if I can find this because I just closed my Bible. Stay in Ezra. Don't do like the pastor. Um, Okay, Ezra, I want you to notice something very interesting. All right, Ezra 6, (coughs) I'm going to read verse 14. Ezra Ezra 6, 14, are you there? So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered Through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the what? Okay, all together, church, one, two, three. According to the what? Is that plural or singular? Singular. Singular. Of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. So why is that important, pastor? Because in the Medo-Persian mind, those three decrees are one but it isn't one until the third one is given. Now they're complete. So if you want to know when to start the 2300 days, you have to begin when the last one, the most complete one, is given. Historically, and through archaeology, we know that that year was 457 BC. If, If you really want to sink your teeth into this, look for a book called Ezra 7, by Siegfried Horn, Siegfried Horn. Incredible book, and it's fascinating to see how historians and and, uh, archeologists combine cultures and calendars uh, to finally, as well as data that is presented in in history uh, in an effort to arrive at the dates. It is is mind-blowing, the science involved. But the year is 457, so now we have our starting point. And uh, let's continue. So, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to Messiah the Prince is 483 years. That's the 69 weeks, right? If we uh, multiply that by seven. So so here the angel just told Daniel that when that last decree goes out, the Messiah will be here in 483 years. That is amazing. So, 69 weeks, 483 years, from the going forth, 457, at 27 A.D. is when we can expect the Messiah to manifest and begin his ministry. At 457, excuse me, at uh, A.D. 27. So, let's take a look real quick here at number 8. The angel... Said, If you will count 69 weeks from 457 B.C., you will come to Messiah the Prince. Did this, in fact, happen? Acts 10, 37 and 38. That your word you know, that word you know, after the baptism which John preached, how God what? Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with what? Power. So you remember at, at the baptism of Jesus that he, that the the the... the uh, the dove-like form that came upon him, that was the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He, and, and right here, the text is telling us that that filling was the anointing. In, in the Hebrew, the word anoint, anointed is Messiah. And in the Greek, it's the Christ. That, those words are the same. Messiah, Christ, and Anointed. The Messiah came on the scene. I want to show you something that's going to blow your mind. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark chapter one. This, there is something that Jesus said in the beginning of his ministry that used to perplex me until I read this, uh, till I studied this prophecy. Go to Mark chapter one. If you're there, say amen. amen. This is really exciting. Mark chapter 1, and I am going to read. Uh, I'll get to pick up in verse 14. By the way, what, what color are the letters in 14? They're black. In 15, what color are they? Whose words are those? Okay, now watch this. After now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So it's the very beginning of Christ's ministry. And said. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. I used to think to myself, what was he referring to? He was referring to Daniel's prophecy. It had been fulfilled. The Messiah is here. And he began preaching. You know, when I was... Thank you, Susan. When I was... um, Began... uh, Oh, I, 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 have to, I wish I could have time to share the story because it really is kind of hilarious. But when I was working at First Union Mortgage, the Lord led me to start a Bible study there. And I used that word kindly. He dragged me. I really didn't want to do this because I didn't know what I was doing. Does that sound familiar? But when I saw that God really was God who was trying to get me this Bible study started, I, I, I relented and I said, okay. We actually had a really neat group There were about 13 of us. The the organization gave us an area to meet once a week. We could have lunch in their their, their meeting area, uh, conference room. And uh, we would study the Bible. We did that for almost three years. And and what was really cool is when we got together um, and we began asking, what does everybody want to study? They wanted to study Daniel and Revelation. For two and a half years... That's all we studied. We went chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and at times whole meetings were just on one word. We just unpacked it. And I, can't, I had no idea that God was laying down a foundation for me that later he was going to call me in the ministry. But my foundation was, was laid down as a pastor right there in First Union Mortgage Corporation as we were unpacking the word And I was blown away by the accuracy of God. Let me tell you, God is guiding history. Don't let anybody tell you any different. There is a hand at the wheel. Nothing you know, the Lord doesn't do well. Oh, that got by me. That does not happen with the Lord. The Lord is guiding. You can have confidence, my friend, that history is a guided process. It is heading somewhere. And it is heading to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's exactly where it's going. But that was so amazing. And I remember particularly particular this one because this had so bugged me. Why was Jesus saying the time is fulfilled? And it wasn't until I studied the prophecy that I realized the Messiah was now on the ground. That to me was so incredibly awesome. And so now if you're going to do some math on this, you have to remember how historians register time. You know, many of us when we do BC to AD, we tend to go 5 4 3 2 1 0 1 2 3 and that's not how historians reckon time. It goes 4 3 2 1 and then it begins 1. You get two ones in that transition. Did you catch that? This is very important otherwise you're going to end up off. And um So if you do the math that way, you end up with A.D. uh, 27. And on the bottom of your page, it looks like this. Um, You have to remember that year. And if you do, you'll end up in A.D. 27. Are you with me? All right. Very, very important. Let's take a look at number eight. Or nine. We can do nine. By the way, right now, we have covered 69 weeks. How long is the prophecy? It's 70 weeks that are determined for your people, right? So there's one week left that we haven't touched on yet. So all we've just left Jesus starting his ministry at the end of 69, but there's still another week to go. So let's take a look at number nine. What was to take place next in the prophecy? And uh, in Daniel 9, 26 and 27, it says, and after the 62 weeks, remember you have the seven weeks, then the 62 weeks? And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be... Cut off. Let's stop right there. Cut off. What does that mean? Open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Let's find out what cut off means. Isaiah chapter 53. This is the chapter that most clearly describes the ministry of the Messiah when he came to earth. And um, so conclusive is is the evidence in this chapter that the, the Jews refer to this chapter as the forbidden chapter and would not allow their people to read this chapter. They pronounced a curse on anyone who would read this chapter. The reason being is because if you read it and study it carefully, it clearly points that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Messiah. How many of you remember the story of Joseph Wolfe? Huh. You all don't know the story of Joseph Wolf? Okay, I asked for hands, I didn't see any. How many of you know the story of Joseph Wolfe? Just a few of you. He was a Jewish convert to Christ uh, in the 1800s. He was like a modern-day Paul. He went everywhere to spread the gospel. You need to read his story, but his father was a, was a rabbi in the in synagogue, and, uh, and this young boy at 11 years old, uh, he was approached by a Protestant and was told that Jesus was the Messiah. And, to read, and, the, and the Protestant told him to read Isaiah 53. So the young boy behind his father's back read Isaiah 53 and he saw all the evidence. And he went to his dad and he said, Dad, what's what's with Isaiah 53 and, and Jesus? And uh, he actually got kicked out of the house at age 11. And he had to live on the streets and later became a mighty, mighty preacher for the Lord. Powerful. But let's take a look. Um, and we're trying to understand... <laughs> excuse me, cut off. Isaiah 53, verse 8. Oh, let's p- pick up at 7, referring to what happened to Jesus in the closing moments of his life. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb. Um, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? He died from the land of the living. <clears throat> for the, for, and for what reason? For the transgression of my people. He was stricken. So Jesus died for the transgression of his people. And this comes out in the text. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Why was he cut off? For us. He was cut off for others, not for himself. Um, then he shall confirm a covenant with for many uh, for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice. Okay, if you're dealing with a week, what is the middle of the week? It would be three and a half. How, many, how long was Christ's ministry? Three and a half. Are you following? So from the beginning of his ministry, in that last week of time, the angel was saying that Christ's ministry would only last three and a half years. And, at the, and in the middle of that week, he would die. But there's still three and a half years remaining, isn't there, for the probation of Israel? Um, and let's see what happens. Um, by the way, when Jesus died in the middle of that week, what happened in the temple? The curtain was torn. Let's take a look at that. let turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 15, if you're there, say amen, excuse me, Mark chapter 15, Josephus records this, by the way, also the historian, and in Mark, you still hear pages turning, this is a good sound. Mark 15, I'm going to pick up at verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the sacrificial system had come to an end. You didn't need any more because the Messiah had come. The one sacrifice we all needed has come. And so Jesus dies right on schedule. Not only that, he died on time. He died when the lamb, the Paschal lamb's life was supposed to be taken at three. And so as the, Josephus tells us that as the priest has the lamb and he's ready to take the life of the lamb, there's this roaring, tearing sound. And as he turns, the temple is torn in half, he's horrified, and the lamb runs away. Those are the words of Josephus, the historian. Right on schedule, Jesus begins his ministry. Right on schedule, Jesus dies. Absolutely amazing. Well, let's pick up and see what happens next. So we have the starting point, and it uh, and of the seventy weeks it ends in AD 34. The sixty-nine weeks show the beginning of Christ's ministry. He was baptized AD 27. He was the Anointed One. Three and a half years his ministry. In the middle of the last week, he dies. There's still three and a half more years to go. What happens? Number ten. Jesus told his disciples to preach first to which group of people? Do you remember? To the Jews, Matthew 10, 5, and 6. Do not go to the way of the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of who? Israel. Why? Because their mission, they still had an opportunity to fulfill their mission. Three and a half years remained. They still had the opportunity to fulfill their mission and and spread it to everywhere. But they didn't. Let's take a look. They didn't respond. There's some that did, but not many. Look at the note right below that. I'm going to read aloud if you'll read along with me. Jesus insisted that his disciples preach first to the Jews because they still had three and a half years remaining of the 490-year opportunity to accept and proclaim the Messiah. The prophecy in Daniel 9.27 said that Jesus would confirm the covenant or the great plan of salvation with many for one prophetic week, seven literal years. But Jesus was crucified in the midst of that final week, allotted to his chosen nation. So how could he confirm the covenant with them after his death? The answer is found in Hebrews 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Jesus' disciples preached to the Jews for that final three and a half years until the nation officially rejected the gospel message in eighty thirty four 34 when Stephen, a righteous deacon, was publicly stoned. Let's take a look at that. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter seven. This is really kind of a, I'm asking the Lord to help me how to present this. This is an amazing uh, moment in the history of the uh, plan of salvation. Um, they, they, they arrest poor Stephen on drummed up charges. and uh, so he's in the trial and, and all this false stuff is being said about him and he's standing, he's just sitting there in perfect peace. It's his turn to speak. And as he gets up, he begins, he begins preaching a history lesson. the history of Israel, God's people who didn't act like it. They had all the right material, but they weren't yielding their lives to him. And he just laid out their history of continual apostasy and backsliding. Well, there comes a point, you know, the old saying, truth hurts. Isn't that right? They didn't dig what he was saying. Hey, you know, when the doctor comes and sits in front of you and tells you you have cancer, punching him in the mouth really isn't the solution to the problem. Are are you with me? He's got to tell you what you have going on. Otherwise, you're not going to seek help. And that's what God was trying to do. One last attempt to reach the leaders of the nation. And watch the response. Verse, I'm picking up uh, Acts 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they they were cut to the heart. Isn't that what the truth does? Hey, we need that, friends, don't we? Don't punch the messenger. They were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. That is not a good sign. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, this is very interesting and very significant, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus what? Now, why do you suppose the Bible goes so far as to mention his position? Wouldn't it be enough just to say he saw Jesus there? There's something significant at that moment about him standing. We're going to take a look at what it is. Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know that's going to be later, don't you? Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen. And as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. The gospel was to go first to the nation, and the nation rejected it. What, look what happens now, verse, the next verse, 8, one. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Samaria, what happened is that the gospel went to the Gentiles. It went, it spread. The nation had rejected it, and so it spread. Now, I want to go back and revisit this standing thing. What exactly, what exactly was taking place there? When he looks up and he sees Christ, not seated at the right hand, but standing at the right hand, what was being communicated? Let's turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3. If you're there, say amen. This is a very simple verse, but it's a very telling verse, and it, and it gives us insight as to what was happening at that moment. Isaiah 3, and I'm going to read verse 13. The Lord stands up to plead or contend and stands to what? To judge. You see, the nation of Israel had been given a probationary period. 490 years were given to them. But in the stoning of Stephen, their probation was closed. As a nation, they were no longer going to be his visible representatives. God was going to raise up another group now to be his visible representative. When, when he saw him standing, that should have been a big warning and a clue to the Jews that they were about to seal the fate of their nation. And not long after this, the Romans came and wiped them off the land. Judgment came. But now take a look at our next verse. Uh, verse 11. What warning did Jesus give to his chosen people? He had given them a warning and it's found in Matthew twenty-one, forty-three. He says, therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And it passed on to the Christian world. Now the Christian world is up to bat and they have a job to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. His return. Number 12. So what is the other nation spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 21, 43, which would become his chosen people? Galatians 3, 9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. My dear friends, you, no one will be saved for being a genetic Jew. Salvation is by faith and faith only. Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was of the land of Ur. He was a Chaldean. He was not a Jew, but he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And that's true for all here. I can't tell you how excited I was when I first learned that because I used to hear the guys on the radio say that God played favorite. He liked the Jews, but they kind of got messed up. So because they messed up, now we have a chance to be saved. But if they didn't mess up, we would have been lost. Not true. Salvation is by faith. It has always been by faith. Romans 2, 20 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. When we allow Christ to write his laws upon our hearts and our mind, we're his children. When we yield to him and allow him to be the Lord of our lives. And then of course, 1 Peter 2, 9, very similar imagery in the Old Testament applied to Israel, now applied to the church. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Nation. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, God has called us to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. His return, are we doing it? Are there people, are there family members that do not know That Christ is coming. Are there relatives? Are there people on our block? People we work with? You and I are here so we can know this, but not to keep it to ourselves and turn this into a club like the Jews did. It's to share it. We have good news to share. Number 13. Oops, I forgot this text. According to the angel who spoke with Daniel, what would happen at the end of the 2,300 years? Daniel 8.14 says, and he said unto me for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be what? Yes. Cleansed. And what we're finding, dear friends, when you do the math, is the, and you look at the chart right below there, is that 2,300 days or years, excluding the zero from 457, lands us in 1844. What the Bible is telling us is that since 1844 and and since we know that the Day of Atonement is a fall feast, we can say with confidence in the fall of 1844, the judgment has been underway. The cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, the removal of our record of sins is taking place. This is the last act of the high priest in the cycle of the plan of salvation in Israel, of the sanctuary service. And when he comes out, it's over. And this is telling us that Christ is soon to return. What we're going to learn in the days ahead, in fact, why don't we just read the note there and then I'll share some thoughts. In AD 34, there remained (laughs) 1810 years of the 2300-day prophecy. Study the diagram below and notice the dates. Adding 1810 years to AD 34 brings us to the autumn of 1844. The angel said that at that time, the heavenly sanctuary would be cleansed. The earthly sanctuary was destroyed in A.D. 70. Jesus, our high priest in heaven, began removing the records of sin from the heavenly sanctuary in 1844. Now, what we're going to learn when we get to lesson 17 is that just as Jesus began his work in 1844 in heaven, there was a corresponding work that began on earth. And we're going to study what that was. Then when we get to study 18, we're going to look at the second coming. But in our next study, we're going to study the sanctuary. We're going to study the judgment. And we're going to learn that the judgment is in three phases. Phase 1 begins began in October uh, in the fall of 1844. That's phase 1. We're going to study what phase 1 is. But some of you, this may be a new, a new idea to you. Uh, and you might ask yourself, I thought the judgment takes place after Christ returns. There's a problem with that thinking. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to Revelation chapter 22, the last book of the Bible, and we're going to look at some red letters again. Revelation chapter 22. If you're there, say amen. All right, Revelation 22. I still hear pages turning. I don't want to tell you what the verse is because then you're going to read ahead of me. I want us to read together. So, Revelation 22, and I'm going to read now, red letters, verse 12 says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Who's this? It's Jesus, and my reward. This is very important, is with me. What's the reward of Jesus when he returns? What's going to happen to the righteous? They go ahead of heaven, right? They inherit eternal life. What happens to the wicked on the earth when Jesus returns? They'll be destroyed. Now, If the judgment is after that, how do you know who's supposed to get what reward? That verse right there is a clear indicator to us that the judgment has to take place prior to the coming of Christ. And that's exactly what the prophecy tells us. That the judgment is actually underway and it's in three phases. Okay, let's take a look at number 14. Whose cases are being considered in the pre-advent judgment? 1 Peter 4.17 says, judgment is is to begin where? At the house of God. Why? You should know this answer. The sins that were being removed on the day of atonement were only the sins of those who, upon bringing their lamb, had their sin, that was pardoned transferred. Those who have not accepted the Messiah as their sin bearer are bearing their own sin. There's no hope for them. Turn to John chapter... 3. It's a very very well-known verse, or very very well-known text, but you're going to see something now you haven't seen before. John chapter 3. Okay, we're going to look at John 3.16, right? We all know this verse, right? But uh, we're going to read on a little bit, and you're going to see something you've never seen before. But now that you understand the transfer of sin, you understand the role of the, of, of, of the Day of Atonement, this is going to make more sense to you. All right, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already. My friends, we are all terminal. And the only way out is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the, when the judgment begins, the first phase, which we're going to look at is the investigative judgment. It begins with those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Why? Because the others are already lost. It begins with them. And we're going to find there are three phases. There's an investigative phase to see if the people who made a commitment to Jesus really stuck with it. And the second one is a sentencing phase for those who obviously didn't. And the third one is the executive phase in which the the judgment then is carried out and the wicked are destroyed. Are you with me? We're gonna find this line up, don't miss it. Now in our next sermon, this next coming Sabbath is gonna be a communion Sabbath. It just falls on our calendar. It's gonna be a communion Sabbath. It's a time to make sure that everything's right between our soul and our savior. Let's make sure this week that everything is right between us and our spouses and our children with their parents, kids with their parents, with their kids and, and then friends and family here at church. Let's make sure everything is right between our soul and our Savior. And then let's do one last one. And that is, um, oh, one aspect I wanted to, look at the note right below 14. I want to read that with you because there's an aspect here I don't want you to forget. Thus, since 1844, Jesus has been conducting the final phase of his ministry as taught in the ancient Jewish sanctuary, his work of final judgment. In our next study, we will look deeper into the Bible to learn what the judgment is all about. Remember, highlight, underline this, while Jesus conducts the judgment, he still intercedes for you and me. He continues the work of mediation even while he conducts the final judgment. Praise God, our high priest is not only our judge, but also our intercessor, He stands for us. This is going to be an amazing study. So, last, are you glad that God has provided the sanctuary truth so we might know what Jesus is doing for us right now in the heavenly sanctuary? If you're thankful, raise your hand. Praise God. He's not up there building houses. He's he's getting us ready for the houses. May God bless you. Oh, Father in heaven, this is amazing that you actually told us exactly when Jesus would come, Jesus would die, when the gospel would go to the Gentiles, and when the judgment would begin. All of it right on schedule. Lord, help us to recognize the solemn hour in which we are living. We are living in the final remnants of time. Just as the Jews of old were to give a message that the Messiah was coming, so now we have been given the same message. Father, help us to be faithful to our call. Help us to remember that while that judgment is taking place, we have an advocate, Christ the righteous, who said to us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our hope is in you, Lord Jesus, and in nothing else. Be with us, and as we leave this place, may we contemplate these things and study them. To the glory and honor of your name, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.